with that, I guess I'll begin by welcoming those of you watching online right now from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains. My name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church, and if God does put it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. And with that, let's just take a second and pray together. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us, for saving us, for rescuing us. Lord, we think of President Biden, and we pray for wisdom to be given to him. We pray for a special grace upon his life. We pray that you would protect him, Lord, his body, his, his mental faculties, Lord, um, that you watch over him, that you would assist him, instruct him. And we ask that you would help all of our, our leaders for that matter. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad, we pray for their safety their protection, and most importantly, for their salvation. Lord, for the, the persecuted church, Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria, Pastor Yusuf in prison in Iran, Pastor Wang and Pastor John imprisoned in China, for the Christians in North Korea, for the Christians, Lord, in Eritrea, for the Christians, Lord, in the South Sudan, Lord, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Please help them. Please help them, Lord. Please help, Lord, the Christians in Russia and Ukraine. Lord, for Vladimir Putin, we pray that you would save him. We pray also that you would confuse and frustrate his wicked plans. And today, God, we need your help. I pray you'd free us from anxiety. I pray that you'd free us from competing thoughts that are vying for our attention. And you, you just help us to hear from you. We, we want to hear from you. We need encouragement. We need conviction. We need you. So please help us. And please guide my speech today. If there's something that, that I shouldn't say, that, that I'm planning on saying this afternoon, don't, don't let me say it, God. And if there's something that I have no intention of saying, then you want me to say something, then give me a fresh, fresh filling of the Spirit. Give, give me that word for us today. We need you. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, John's Gospel. John's Gospel is where we're at. This is part nine. So part eight was two weeks ago. Um, so if you weren't here last week, um, took a pause. My buddy Tim came and preached. And so this is, this is part nine today. And we're going to open it up in John 3.16. John 3.16. So I'm going to read it. Then we're going to talk about it because that's what we do here. We like expository preaching. So let's, let's do it too with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. This is the great end zone Bible verse that you'll see written on a sign that someone's holding up on the end zone of a football game trying to get on TV. This is the, the Timmy Tebow verse, right, that he'd paint underneath his eye. It's a wonderful verse. It's a wonderful verse that offers this beautiful picture and hope. It's the first verse that you probably learn as a kid. 
John 3.16, that God loves the world. Now, understand from a Jewish perspective, they would have been very familiar with the idea and the notion that God loves the children of Israel. If you told a Jew in the first century, hey, you know God loves you? They'd be like, of course, God loves the children of Israel. They knew that. But see, in this verse, in John 3.16, it expands the thinking of the day. It expands it to not just Israel. See, in this verse, we come out to understand that God's love is not restricted by race or ethnicity. And so, as the verse says, God loves the world. He loves the world! And that's great news! But the world doesn't love him back. They should, but they don't. And a lot of people will suggest that while that's not good, it's not terrible either. Like, it could be worse. As if to say, I don't love God, but I don't hate him either. I'm just indifferent. As if there's a scenario in which one can hold a neutral position towards God, and that will somehow maybe alleviate any potential issues that God might take with me. And however, the problem with that way of thinking is, it's just make-believe thinking. Because there is no such thing as a neutral position with God. If you don't love God and follow God, you stand as his enemy in opposition to him. So God loves the world, and the issue is we don't love him back. You see, God and his love is so marvelous. And it's not simply because it's so all-encompassing, but rather God's love is so amazing because the world is so very bad. In fact, according to John chapter 3, verse 20, we'll look at this verse in a moment, but we actually hate God. And if that surprises you to hear that we hate God, that the world hates God, or maybe you just want a second opinion, well, just look what Paul says. Because he's going to say the exact same thing in Romans chapter 1, verse 30, that unbelievers are actually haters of God. See, the, the fact that the world is so wicked and terrible that John, who is writing this gospel, writes also in 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 17, he actually, in that passage, he forbids Christians to love the world or anything in it, which might sound a little odd because John 3.16 literally just told us that God loves the world. So why would John, who just wrote John 3.16 and says God loves the world, in another passage in that 1 John 2.15-17 passage, then tell us not to love the world? And I think the way that we harmonize and understand what might seem on the surface as a contradiction is to remember how God loves the world. He loves it with a selfless, costly, redemptive love, which ought to be our example, versus loving the world and its vices with selfish and participating cooperation. And so what is so shocking about the love of God is that he loves the world, and the world is so wicked. It's so wicked. And oh, by the way, because of our wicked, fallen nature, there is an inability on the part of fallen man to do the thing we need to do in order to escape the wrath of God and not perish. And it, it might seem a little odd that I just used the word inability. You're like, did, did he use the word inability? I did. Okay, so you heard me right. But that's exactly what the Bible says. Because fallen and sinful people not only don't love God when they should, it's actually much worse than that. 
we can't love God. And in case you think inability maybe isn't the, the best word to use or it's somehow inaccurate, well, just consider what Paul says in Romans 8, 7. Chris, we've got that slide, right? You can read it. It's fine. Take a second. I don't even make type of interpretation. There it is. The mind that's on the flesh. Oh, by the way, that's the mind of every non-Christian, of every unbeliever. It says it's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. It cannot. Like, the world is so wicked. You're like, yeah, I know it's wicked. No, I don't think you understand just how wicked it is. That's how wicked it is. Like, how wicked do you have to be that you're unable to submit to God's law? Really, really wicked. And that's why I use the word inability. Because if you can't do something, then by nature you're unable. And so here in the midst of John 3.16, the great in-zone Bible verse, we see the hope of God contrasted with the wrath of God. People are going to die. People are going to die. People, people are going to perish. And they're going to go to hell. It doesn't get any more real than that. And as verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And just as verse 16 offers hope to the world, so does verse 17. See, there, there is hope in Jesus, but when we read verse 17, you might notice something that seems out of place. Because if you're familiar with John's gospel, you'll notice how verse 17 seems to be saying something that some of the other verses in John are saying the opposite. For example, John 9.39. I'm sure you're probably already thinking of it, but I'll have Chris put it on the slide anyways. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we just read verse 17, and now we're looking at this one. Same guy, right in both verses. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world. And then you think, well, maybe that's just, that's just like an anomaly. Well, then we look at John 5, 27. Also, right there, it says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. So in 939, he says, for judgment, I came into this world. Here in 527, he says, he's given him authority to execute judgment. And yet here in 317, what are we looking at? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Kind of seems like we got two different ideas going on. And so... Here would be my best attempt to harmonize 317 with the other ones. And the first thing I'd point out is that word judgment that we just saw in those two verses in chapter 9 and chapter 5, that word in the original Greek, it's just a neutral word. Judgment. If someone's going to be judged, they might be judged innocent or guilty. So to be judged in of itself, that's, that's a neutral idea. And here's the second thing I'd say to harmonize the two, lest it seem like some just apparent contradiction, and more significantly, when Jesus came, when the Son of Man arrived, when Jesus showed up, he did not arrive into a morally neutral world. Judgment can be neutral. That's true. The world isn't. 
See, when Jesus showed up, he showed up to an incredibly wicked and lost place that was guilty and condemned already. And in, in case that sounds maybe unjust, I don't like the idea of hearing that the world was guilty, like already condemned, as if maybe somehow it had no chance. Lest we forget the world's not a neutral place. It's terribly, terribly wicked. And verse 18 is going to continue to build on this idea. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. He's condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In verse 18, it helps to bring clarity to the idea presented in verse 17 that Jesus was not sent to condemn the world. And, and that's because as we just read, well, the world was already under condemnation. The world stands guilty before God. And that's exactly what the world doesn't want to hear. They don't want to hear that they're wrong. They, they don't want to hear that they need to repent. They don't want to hear that they need to stop sinning. They don't want to hear that they need to believe in Jesus because they want to keep believing that they're good and continue doing whatever they want to do. And it's no secret what they want to do. They want to keep on sinning. They don't want to consider that God is displeased with them. And so they reject all these ideas or they tell themselves that they're not real, or they don't exist, or that God, man, God really doesn't care what I do or who I love, and if he does exist, man, he's not upset with me. At the very least, I'm like Switzerland when it comes to God. But see, the truth is, there is no neutrality when it comes to God. There is no unaffiliated. There is no unaligned. There is no Switzerland. There is only guilty, 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 and more guilty. And this is the case for every single person even for Christians, for no Christian was born a Christian. Every one of us were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the human condition, and that is why we need a Savior. And so now as verse 18 says, we are already condemned. We're already condemned. Which means, as John 3.16 has made clear, We perish. We perish because we are condemned already by God. And let me be really clear on this concept of perishing by looking at another place in the Bible where the Apostle John, same guy who's writing the verses we're looking at right now, where he describes it. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, here's how he describes perishing. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Or as Paul would say in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. These are just a few examples, a few of very many awful examples in the Bible of what it means to perish. You see, there's no way to soften the biblical idea of what it means to perish. Perishing is not, as some would say, well, it's just kind of ceasing to exist, going out of existence. It is staying in existence and suffering in the fiery torments of hell forever. And despite that clear biblical reality, you'll hear celebrities social media influencers, and other credible experts. 
and they'll joke about heaven or how much fun it will be to go to hell and hang out with all their friends. But the truth is, it's very difficult to have fun with your friends in hell when you find yourself in such terrible and constant agony and torment. See, what you're going to find is that Jesus is going to talk about hell more than any other person in the Bible. And that's because his goal is to discourage people from going there. This is why the good news is such good news. And that is because, as John 3.16 rightly states, it is the love of God that rescues us from the wrath of God through our faith in the only Son of God. And I know someone's going to take issue with what I'm saying. They're going to say things like, Joe, I'm a really good person. Or, yeah, maybe I've sinned. I don't deserve to perish. I don't deserve to go to hell. It's not like I'm that bad. It's not like I'm a murderer or a rapist or a mass shooter. There's people way worse than me. And what that individual usually fails to understand is this. When it comes to God, the most worthy person in the universe, that's God. He is the most worthy person in the universe. And a sin against him is significantly more serious than we sin against other people. For example, you could take a little five-year-old kid and you could lie to a five-year-old kid and you may or may not get in any trouble. But if you lie to your spouse, it's going to be a different story, a different set of consequences. Likewise, if you lie to your boss or under oath in front of a Senate Intelligence Committee, you're going to incur a bigger and bigger penalty and punishment every single time. And the reason is, with every single example, the person you sin against has greater and greater authority. See, this is why people can and will perish who don't believe in Jesus and God is totally just to execute his wrath upon rebels and unbelievers and it's all because of who he is. And we owe him. We owe him perfect trust. We owe him perfect trust. We owe him perfect allegiance. We owe him perfect love and worship and honor and respect and obedience because he made us. He made us and he owns us and he sustains us. This is the gospel. This is John 3.16. God loved us enough to give his only son to rescue us from perishing. He loved us. And no one loved him back. And now here in verse 18, we see the shift over to legal language. The shift to the language of the courtroom. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, when, when verse 18 says condemned or not condemned, that, that's legal language being used. That's like saying guilty, not guilty. And so not only is every person in desperate need of a Savior, but we compound our guilt by rejecting and refusing the only person that can alter that guilty verdict. Who, by the way, doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us an acquittal. He doesn't owe anyone life. He doesn't owe anyone anything. That's why this is such amazing and wonderful news. And I'll take it a step further, lest we get too comfortable. And that is because if this is true, and we know it to be true, we have an obligation. We must say something. We must do something. I felt so convicted this past week preparing this sermon, the one you're hearing right now. Looking at these verses, 
it was as if the Holy Spirit was just grabbing me and telling me to go. To get up and to go walk down the hallway and talk to the 25-year-old guy standing on a ladder doing drywall work in my living room. Go and talk to him. Warn him of the wrath to come. I'm looking at the verses. I'm like, yeah, that'll preach well. And I got a guy on a ladder in my living room who's going to die and go to hell. And I knew that for a fact because the previous day we had already had a conversation about spiritual things. So I got up and I went and I talked to him. And I'm like, God, I don't know what to say. Uh, how am I supposed to broach this subject? I talked to him yesterday and maybe he's not going to be open to talk. You know, we, like, we talk ourselves out of talking to people when we know we should talk to people. Like, like, <laughs> like man, I, he's going to see I'm coming on too strong. And so I'm just like, I don't know what to say, but I'm, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go. I sat down there in the living room and I'm just praying, Lord, give me some, give me some like entry point here. Give me, give me the right words. I don't know what to say or do. And, and he did. And um, the conversation sped up, and I got down to brass tacks real quick. And I, I, I like C.S. Lewis. He gets down to business real quickly with his three proofs. And I asked the young man, Daniel, I said, listen, C.S. Lewis, he says when it comes to Jesus, he can only be one of three people, a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. I'm curious, given the spiritual, er, spiritual gifts, given the spiritual beliefs that you've kind of shared with me that you have, who do you think he is? And I was really interested because he said, I think he is exactly who we said he was. I said, you think he's Lord? He's like, yeah. And I said, okay, here's why I think that's a very interesting response. If you don't mind. He's like, oh, I'd love to hear. Why do you think it's so interesting? I said, because you are calling him Lord and throughout the whole conversation talking about how wonderful the unconditional love of God is yet simultaneously blending together the best parts of Hinduism and Buddhism and mystical pagan religions, right, to kind of like make your own version of God. He said, well, why, why do you think that's so interesting? I said, because you embrace the love of God while ignoring, say, the other parts of Scripture that talk about his jealousy or the justice of God. I said, Daniel, I'll just shoot you straight, man. God doesn't want some of you. He wants all of you. He wants your total allegiance. And the truth is, he doesn't have it from you. See, non-Christians, I find, like Daniel, they love the notion of the unconditional love of God. Isn't God's love unconditional? Because to them, that means they can do whatever they want to do. And that just simply isn't true. And so I told them, I said, Daniel, as it stands right now, you're not under the grace of God, but you're under the wrath of God. And I said, dude, I don't know you, man. <laughs> but I care enough to tell you right now while you're in my living room the truth. I said, there's a lot of people. You look at texts like Matthew 7, Luke 6. And on that day, they'll be like, Lord, Lord. And they think they know Jesus. They think they know they're in right standing with Jesus. And they're not. And it's the biggest surprise, like, ever. The, the worst biggest surprise ever. And he says, I don't know who you are. Away from me. And they're sent to hell forever. And I said, I don't want that to be you, dude. I don't want that to be you. Christians, we have a clear obligation and mandate to go and tell the truth. To warn unbelievers that they are under the wrath of God and that God's Son is the only one that can rescue them from the justice of God being poured out on them. And it's only by faith alone, through grace alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, that can rescue them from the punishment we all deserve. So don't tell me 
How much you love unbelievers. Don't tell non-Christians that you care about them. Don't tell your unsaved family members or your friends how much they mean to you if you're never willing to say true things to them. If you're never willing to say the things Jesus says. Because the question you have to ask is how much do I actually love these people? And so verse 19 continues. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their, their works were evil. If there was ever a verse to describe our present culture, and it's verse 19. God comes on this rescue mission to save us and we say, no thanks, go away. God comes with the gift of life and we say, I like my current life just fine. God comes in love to give us his son. And we say, I prefer my gay pride love to your only son. See, this is the judgment. The people love the darkness rather than the light. Verse 19 is all about loving the wrong thing. To be clear, it's actually worse than that. It's about loving evil and wicked things. It is the greatest insult to God. It's saying, God, I would rather worship and serve the things you've created than you as creator. Or as Romans 1 would say, like the wrath of God is being released and the justice of God is being demonstrated and poured out on them. And so verse 20, it says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Verse 20 echoes again the root of the issue. People don't want to stop living their best lives. And, and that wasn't accidental that I said that they're living their best lives. Right? If they're going to hell, they are living their best lives. It doesn't get any better than this. People don't want to stop living their best lives. They don't want to stop sinning. But rather, they want to keep on pretending that everything is fine, that everything is good, and playing make-believe with their own version of what, what is right and what is wrong and who God is. And the text tells us they hate the light. And some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you guys have family or, or friends, and you'll get snubbed because they know you're a Christian. Like, they know you're a real, legitimate, bona fide Christian. And you'll get snubbed, you'll get alienated, or told to not bring up certain topics should you be invited to a friend or family gathering. And the reason is, is because they don't want the things they do and say and believe to be exposed. Because if they are exposed, that's like rain on their little man-made, papier-mâché houses of idolatry that they've built for themselves. And so they hate it. They hate the light. They hate anyone who represents the light because the things they're doing are not okay and God is not pleased with them. But whoever does what is true, verse 21, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Whoever does what is true comes to light. That phrase, to do what is true, 
It's actually a Jewish expression. And, and it means to act faithfully. It means to act honorably. And so in the context of, say, a passage like verse 21 of chapter 3, it would be acting faithfully, acting honorably as it relates to the truth that is in Jesus. Thus, the person who acts in this way, um, they're going to do so happily. They're going to do so happily. And I say that because I want to be clear. No one's twisting their arm to make them act in a verse 21 way. Nobody. Rather, for such a person who has met Jesus in a saving way, it's a no-brainer. It's like they would be silly not to act in a verse 21 way. And when they do what is true, well, by the way, they, they aren't doing it to show off. Because when you read verse 21, it says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You might think, huh, well, that guy's a little cocky, or she's a real piece of work, right? No, 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 negative, negative. See, it's not about showing off in verse 21. It's not about being cocky or that somehow this person is trying to have this air of superiority. But rather, they do what is true and right because it demonstrates the superior worth of Christ in God who has brought about the miracle of new birth and life. Or, or Paul would maybe restate it in a little bit different way in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God did this work in my life, and I want everybody to know how great he is. And so the question then becomes, am, am I the one that is making this happen? Because verse 21, you could swing it, you could, you could swing on the pendulum a little too far each way, right? You could be like, okay, so am, am I doing this? Am I making this happen? Am I the one bringing about Am I contributing here in verse 21, or is this all God's doing? And my answer is, yes, absolutely. Right? And let me clarify. You say, okay, Joe, it's not an either or, and it's not a both and. That's correct. It's just God. He's the rock star. It's his show. Our lives are about making much of him. And when we do what is true and right, as verse 21 describes, the hope is, the hope is, when we're doing what's true and right, that people see clearly how great he is. We want people to see how great he is. We want people to know him. Or as the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31, so, so whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. See, the, the main goal the main goal of John in writing these verses is not to shy away from the wrath of God, but that in seeing the horse that lay ahead, we would, be, we would be driven to desperation, driven towards hope, driven towards God, for it is the wrath of God revealed to us that it ought to drive us into the arms of God. And for every person who has passed from death to life, from being haters of God to lovers of God, there has come a time in our lives in which the truths of this passage have served as a wake-up call to the grim reality that awaits us if we continue to hate the light and hate Jesus and reject the hope that he offers. 
As I've already said, Jesus is going to talk more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And that's because his goal is to discourage people from going there. Discourage people like you and me and anyone watching this online. As well as people like John Newton. You know John Newton? Anybody? A couple people know John Newton. Born in 1725. He became a sea captain slave trader, an outright, really terrible person. Very wicked, unregenerate, pagan, heathen, rebel against God. Yeah, I think that about sums up John Newton. Terrible, terrible, terrible guy! And that is until he experienced the new birth brought about by God. See, for for John Newton, it it took God causing and ordaining several, like, near-death encounters to get his attention. In his writings, he recounts, he found himself in this terrible Atlantic storm in which he almost shipwrecked. He he really didn't think he was going to survive this storm. And that event shook him just so terribly into a spiritual seriousness and made him finally ponder his own morality because the truth is when you live in the world, no one thinks about death, right? The psalmist says, like, like a wise man like, prays to God and says, Lord, like, teach me a number of my days that I may get a heart of wisdom. It's wise to ponder your mortality. The world never wants you to think about, you might die tonight. You might not wake up tomorrow. The world never wants you to consider that. So for Newton, when he almost died in the Atlantic, he had this kind of come to Jesus moment. He had this kind of wake up call. And he began pondering the thought of being under the wrath of God and destined for destruction. And then once more, yet a second time, he found himself in Ireland hunting, enjoying the time. It's how it goes, right, in life. You never think about dying, you're just having a good time. You're driving down the street, and then boom, your life's over. And there he was, hunting in Ireland, when his gun accidentally went off so near his face that it burned away the corners of his hat. You see, for Newton, he came to see these experiences as God's way of getting his attention and teaching him to fear so that he would look for relief in the only place that it can be found, Christ, and Christ alone. And it was from those near-death experiences which came perhaps the most famous hymn of all time that he wrote. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was a gracious thing that I would even consider that. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. I didn't fear, really, dying before that. And how grace my fears at the same time were relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. It is the thought of pondering the horrors of the wrath of God. That ultimately are designed to drive us into the arms of God. So as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. Jesus, for those of us who don't know you, 
I pray that we would. I pray that in this moment, we really would ponder our own mortality. It's a good thing, Lord, the scriptures tell us to consider our mortality. James tells us how life is like a vapor. It's awfully short. And my prayer is that, Lord, anyone in this room right now would be prepared to meet you and to be received and welcomed by you. And Lord, my prayer is also that we would have a burning desire and passion for the lost that we know. It's one thing to say we care about the lost and love our unsafe family members, but if we're not willing to talk to them and warn them, let alone just pray for them, well, we need to wake up, and I pray for conviction right now for those of us who need it. You are so kind, you are so good, and you are so gracious, and we love you so much. We pray this in your name, amen.